Welcome to Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care, an educational podcast for individuals needing long-term care and their families. In this episode, we are sharing with you a presentation held by NORC, the National Long-Term Care Ombudsman Resource Center, on how to identify and respond to signs of trauma and potential abuse or neglect and support residents as ombudsman programs resume in-person visits during the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Laura Mesqueda, a national and international expert of elder abuse and neglect, will provide tips and recommendations for supporting residents and share available resources. You will also hear from two ombudsman program representatives as they share their experiences resuming in-person visits. To view the slides and resources mentioned in this presentation, visit theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality. Welcome to our webinar, Resuming In-Person Visits During COVID-19. Tips for Identifying Trauma and or Potential Abuse and Supporting Residents. We're glad that you're here with us today. We know that 2020 and the start of this year has been extremely challenging, to say the least. We continue to be in awe of how you have advocated for individual residents and participated in systemic advocacy during the pandemic, despite the numerous barriers and having to learn how to work and communicate in new ways. We appreciate all that you've done and continue to do on behalf of and with the residents that you serve. My name is Amity Overall-Labe and I'm the director of NORC and um, we are very glad that you're here today. Next slide, please. Based on our registration data, I believe there may be some attendees that are not part of an ombudsman program and if so, welcome. And just in case we have some that are not part of the ombudsman program network, or are new to the program, I want to briefly introduce NORC. NORC is the National Long-Term Care Ombudsman Resource Center, and we're funded by a grant from the Administration on Aging, Administration for Community Living, and Consumer Voice operates NORC. We provide support, technical assistance, and training like today's webinar for ombudsman programs across the country. Next slide. Just so you know, and I believe that you probably saw the notification, we are recording today's webinar and we'll post the recording and materials and share the link with all registrants and our entire network early next week. For those of you on the line, um, please use the Q&A feature for questions for speakers. Use the chat feature to submit comments or respond to questions from speakers or other attendees. And please complete the evaluation questionnaire, questionnaire once the webinar is over. Next slide. If you're not familiar with Zoom, wanted to share some screenshots about what the platform looks like. If you take your mouse and scroll to the bottom of your page, you should see a bar that has a chat option and a Q&A. So again, just hit the Q&A to open up and um, enter your question at any time for the presenters. We will take questions after all three presentations. And of course, all attendees are muted. And then you can use the chat option to chat with other attendees or send a message to the panelists and organizers if you need to. Next slide. We are extremely pleased to have three excellent speakers with us today. Dr. Laura Mesqueda, a national and international expert on elder abuse and neglect is the Dean of the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California and a professor of family medicine. Also, the Keck School of Medicine operates the National Center on Elder Abuse, or NCEA, which many of you may be familiar with. 
Karen Jones is the Executive Director, Program Manager of the Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program of San Luis Obispo County, and she is the Chair of the National Association of Local Ombudsmen, otherwise known as NALCO. Jane Brink is a Regional Ombudsman with the Minnesota Ombudsman Program. Jane is also a member of the Consumer Voice Leadership Council and a board member of NALCO. As you can see, there's a wealth of experience and expertise among these speakers. Karen has been an ombudsman for over 20 years, and Jane has been an ombudsman for more than 30. In addition to Dr. Mosqueda's extensive resume, she's also a volunteer ombudsman for the California program, so she truly understands and appreciates the program and can speak from that perspective as well. So thank you all for being here. Next slide, please. Before we hear from our speakers, I'd like to ask one poll question and then review some resources. We asked this question a few months ago during a previous webinar, or a few weeks ago, and we wanna see if the answer has changed. So if you are an Ombudsman Program representative, have you resumed indoor visits with residents? And if you are not a program representative, feel free to just check not applicable. And we'll give that a few more seconds. All right, it looks like about 80% of attendees have voted. So I'm gonna go ahead and close out the polling. And it looks like 60% have resumed visits, at least of those attending the webinar live today and 16% have not, and about 24% said not applicable. So thank you so much, Katie, for launching that poll. You can close it out and go to the next slide, please. Thank you. So you may already be familiar with these, but I'd be remiss if I didn't take some time to mention these resources and a few others during our webinar today. To assist ombudsman programs with resuming in-person visits, we convened a work group many months ago to discuss issues regarding ombudsman program services during the pandemic. The work group members included representatives of the National Association of State Ombudsman Programs and the National Association of Local Ombudsmen. The resources are divided into two groups. One set of materials provide program management considerations and templates for state ombudsmen to assist with developing program policies and procedures and practices during the pandemic. And the other resources are intended to support representatives in performing duties during COVID-19, such as conducting visits safely, responding to and documenting complaints, and communicating with residents while wearing a face covering. The resources are available as PDF and also as Word documents, so programs can add logos and state-specific information. We originally shared this entire toolkit back in August 2020, and they've recently been updated based on changes to CMS and CDC guidance. We have a couple others to post, and they'll be posted this month and updated, and we'll share the whole toolkit again with the network uh, by the end of the month but I wanna call your attention to three in particular that are specifically for representatives during uh, visits. One is a, uh, a checklist 
um, to use for visits during the pandemic. Another includes tips for facility visits during an infectious disease outbreak. And then we have a postcard for tips for communicating while wearing a mask. And I've also included a screenshot and a link to our main landing page with all our COVID-related information for ombudsman programs. Next slide. If you're not aware, we also created this free training series in partnership with Dr. Sherry Gibson. It's for three audiences, long-term care facility administrators, direct care staff, and family members. As you resume visits, we encourage you to share these free resources with facilities and family members. The training series are available as recordings and slides and an on-demand course that I'll show you in just a moment. The topics include person-centered care, trauma-informed care, compassion fatigue, anxiety, and grief. We hope that you find these useful, so please visit that website and share them as you resume visits and speak with facilities and families. Next slide. This is the landing page for the Consumer Voice and NORC On Demand Training Center. There are several courses, including some for residents, families, and ombudsman programs about abuse, resident rights, and more. And the four-part series I just mentioned for administrators and direct care staff is also available here for free, and it includes quizzes if they need to demonstrate completion. Next slide. As this webinar is in recognition of World Elder Abuse Awareness Day, which was earlier this week on the 15th, and we're obviously focused on identifying potential abuse and trauma when visiting during the pandemic, I want to remind you of these available key resources regarding abuse and neglect and the role of the Ombudsman Program. Next slide. Since we're talking about visitation, I want to very, very briefly point out some highlights from the updated CMS guidance as of April 27th. In short, it's really important to remember the main takeaway that facilities should allow indoor visitation at all times for all residents, regardless of vaccination status, except for very few circumstances when visitation should be limited due to a high risk of COVID transmission. Visitation should be person-centered. Vaccinated residents can touch and hug and visitors, including ombudsman program representatives, are not required to be tested or vaccinated or show proof of vaccination as a condition of visitation. For more information, please review the CMS memo that was updated on the 27th of April. The link is right there. And listen to the Consumer Voice webinar that reviews that guidance. Next slide. Another valuable resource about nursing facility visitation and quarantine is this um, tip sheet and FAQs from the Consumer Voice that was released shortly after that guidance was updated. So if you have not seen that, please visit that link and share that with residents, families, and facilities as well as needed. Next slide. If you haven't visited the Consumer Voice website for information and resources regarding COVID-19 and facilities, here's the link to the main landing page. They have pages and pages of information about visitation, resources and webinars, state policies, CMS guidance, stories from residents and families about their experience during the pandemic, as well as a tribute page for those impacted by COVID-19. Next slide. 
And last but not least, this is another great resource from Consumer Voice you may find helpful to share with family members as they resume visits with their loved ones. It provides tips for what to look for when resuming visits to ensure quality of life and care and questions to ask of their loved one to better understand their experience during the pandemic and lockdown. All right. With that, I would like to go to our next slide, Katie, and bring in Dr. Mosqueda. Thank you. Thanks. Well, it's a it's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate um, you folks organizing this. And I just want to second what a great website um, and information is on uh, Consumer Voice and and uh, and the fine work that that Nork does. So we're going to kind of blast through this a bit quickly. A one friendly amendment. I'm no longer the dean of the medical school. I stepped down because my love is really geriatrics, and so I wanted to return to that. Um, and um, and I'm I'm very grateful to. Uh, so my supervisor in the long-term care ombudsman program, uh, she and I um, had quite a few interesting um, uh, sessions in, uh, in some of the nursing homes in Southern California during the peak of the pandemic when we were trying to get back in in, uh, in January, December, January, February, when things were pretty wild here. So I'm sure you all have stories as well. Um, so um, I guess the first thing is, uh, yes, I do get called Dr. Mosquito, but hey, I've learned to live with it. Um, I bug people, I draw blood. So it, it all kind of fits. Um, I'm a family doctor and I'm a geriatrician and I do direct our National Center on Elder Abuse. So we're kind of a sister organization to the National Ombudsman Resource Center. Um, and as mentioned, um, I am a volunteer long-term care ombudsman, have been for about five years. And so I've really learned a lot and um, makes me, I think, especially appreciative to all of you. Um, and uh, we'll have time for a Q&A um, after Karen and Jane are, are done um, as well. So let's just roll right into this and, and move on to the next slide. Um, I just wanted to start by talking a little bit after, about trauma um, after COVID. My presentation is really gonna be about residents, people who live in, um, in nursing homes. But I also wanted to, all of us to keep in mind that a lot of us went through, through trauma during this time. Certainly family members did. Um, um, certainly the staff uh, of the nursing homes did, and we did too. Um, so I, I think um, recognizing what might be going on within ourselves and those around us that are sort of peripheral to the residents that we serve is very important to consider as you're looking at why is that person being so difficult uh, or you know, why are they responding in a, in, with, with bad behavior that um, sometimes we don't realize all the trauma that, that, that has happened after COVID. If we go to the next slide and talk a little bit about the trauma that residents have suffered, um, if we can go to the next slide, please. Um, this is where I'm gonna focus, uh, our talk really is about from the residents perspective, talk a little bit about trauma, talk a little bit about high risk situations, um, a little bit about forensic markers. So I'll be talking about bruising, pressure sores as, as exemplars of that. Um, things that I consider when I'm trying to figure out abuse and neglect, um, and then some resources. So we're starting by talking about the trauma. You know, the trauma might be related uh, to, to COVID when people were isolated. I cannot think of another, pardon me for getting political for just a minute, but I cannot think of another group of people who could have put, been put in, in basically solitary confinement for a year um, and that we could have gotten away with it. And, and I think that 
um, I'm, I'm very disappointed in, in how things rolled out. And I think that people um, will have permanent trauma as a result. And I think that some of these people have dementing illnesses and might, you know, will never be able to understand why loved ones weren't visiting them. And we don't know what effect this has had on them. Particularly if you're somebody who has suffered from a remote trauma as well. It could have been abandonment. It could be that you're a Holocaust survivor. It could be that you're a sexual assault survivor, whatever it might be, all that is, is still there. And so how people responded, um, it isn't just the experience of having been isolated, but what that person's history is, their level of resilience, their level of, of cognitive issues, of mental health issues, how they interpret the event um, is really personal. And we have to understand that what might not seem like a big deal to us is a really big deal to somebody else or versa visa. Um, what seems like it should be a really big deal might not be that big a deal to, to another person. And again, I would really highly recommend um, the uh, resources that, um, that Amity was, was mentioning earlier that talk about trauma-informed care in nursing homes, et cetera. So my big things are observe, ask, and listen. Um, when I'm going in as a volunteer ombudsman, unless I'm doing it with my supervisor, because sometimes there are specific medical issues where I can be helpful looking at charts or such. Um, but other than that, if I'm just, I'm not going in as a geriatrician, I'm going in as a volunteer. I wanna see what's going on, what the interactions are like, ask people how they're doing, and then shut up and listen. <laughs> That's what I have to remember to do is listen. And um, I don't just listen with my ears. Um, I listen with my eyes, seeing people's body language, what's going on. And I listen with my brain and I listen with my heart. And um, I always think that when we're talking to people and trying to understand what kind of trauma they may be experiencing or have experienced, saying, have, have experienced that one of the most important and for me at least most difficult things to do is just let the rest of the world melt away and just be present for that person um, so that they know that I'm a safe person for them to, uh, to talk to. Cultural awareness, of course, is key. Um, so understanding who it is you're speaking to, what kind of, of either values or attitudes they may have related to their culture. Sometimes I need to read up on things ahead of time or ask a friend for advice. Um, when I'm going into talk with somebody who's from uh, a culture that I'm not as familiar with. And just remember, you might be the most trustworthy person in that in their lives. Um, and getting back in now to the nursing homes, I know I'm always so impressed when I go with, with, um, with my supervisor, Rachel Tate. People know her, the residents know her, they come up and they talk to her. And um, you know, the fact that they haven't seen some of us for a long period of time, people really might want to catch up and, and just remember how important you are in, in their lives. Next slide, please. So um, I think the other thing we want to talk about is, is not just um, the trauma, but how we help people heal and taking very much of a person-centered approach, um, eliciting what that person's goals are, empowering them, respecting them, hearing them out, recognizing and calling out their strengths. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, I know you're having some memory trouble or I know you're having some trouble talking to me, but you're able, I understand what you're saying and I really admire X, Y, or Z. So let's see what we can do to help to make sure you are getting shaved more regularly. Uh, I'm just thinking about a gentleman I was talking to recently who was upset about that. Um, helping people 
find the choices they can make. You know, so often, especially in nursing home settings, people feel like their choices are being taken away. And in fact, they are being taken away. But what choices are available to that person? Again, cultural awareness is absolutely critical in understanding where this person is coming from and how it is they're formulating their impressions. Um, counseling is available to different degrees in different nursing homes. Um, uh, I, I really like the idea that you don't have to be a trained therapist to be therapeutic. Um, and I find that to be true. Just being a decent human being and hearing somebody out and, and empathetic listening can go a long way. Please don't underestimate value that you bring um, to the residents that, that we all serve. Next slide, please. So now let's talk a little bit about high-risk situations and, and some ideas about how to, to talk to people and the kinds of medical things I look for in terms of markers. Caregivers, and this is true whether in the home situation or nursing home, who have un inadequately treated mental health problems, substance abuse problems, et cetera. Um, and this can occur in, in nursing homes. People who feel stress burdened, people who are just pardon me for saying it this way, plain old pissed off about being there and doing that work are probably at higher risk of, of uh, doing uh, abusive kinds of acts on people. We know that low staffing ratios are associated with abuse and neglect, not a big surprise, but something we have to advocate and, and push on. Um, and we also know not from nursing home research, but from research we've done in the community, the people with dementia who are physically combative, verbally abusive, uh, are, are more, it's more likely to be associated with also being abused. I want to be really careful here. Don't blame the victim. <laughs> the fact that somebody is physically combative or saying nasty things, they're demented, they've had a stroke, whatever it might be, does not make it okay or justifiable for them to be harmed in any way. It can help us understand what's going on so that we can better protect them and or work with the staff to help them understand what's going on. Uh, but sometimes I still think uh, we say, well, you know, what do you expect? They behave that way and that's what happens. Uh-uh. And what I'm always telling uh, families in my, in my private practice or when I'm in long-term care settings is, let's understand why they're behaving this way so that you don't take it personally. And, and I think we can go a long way toward preventing abuse and neglect if we understand these high risk situations. So when we wanna set the stage, next slide please, for having conversations, it's very important to have a private, you know, to the extent you can, I know it's not always possible, um, establish some rapport. It has to be a safe environment so people can feel like they can speak up. I'm always watching for what I call the sticky caregivers, you know, if I'm in a setting and trying to talk to somebody bedside and there's a, a nursing assistant or somebody who's always kind of hanging around and hovering, I wonder what's going on. So it needs to be safe. Um, I normalize the questions because I ask pretty directly about, um, and I'll tell you what questions I ask in a minute. So I have to normalize it, be empathetic and don't assume. I've really learned that I just can't assume anything and have to always go in with a blank slate and open mind to any situation um, that I'm in. So let's talk about interviewing tips on the next slide. You probably all could be giving me lessons in this, but these are some things that I think about. Having a calm, quiet, and familiar environment, I think is, is can be very helpful. If it is a chaotic environment, asking if the resident and you can go to conference room or some other room that, that's quiet. 
looking at the body language, making sure it's private, compensate for sensory deficits, right? Um, I'm forever helping people wash their glasses. They have their glasses on, but they're so filthy. And it's such an act of kindness and such a, a signal that you care when you say to somebody, your glasses are really filthy. Can I clean those for you? Um, how you're positioned so that they can see you when we're wearing masks, which I don't think we need to be doing to the same extent anymore, that they can see your mouth. Do they have hearing aids? Hopefully they haven't been lost in a nursing home, which frequently happens. Um, if they're if they have hearing aids, are they in? If they're in, are they on? Um, in in helping folks with that, being aware of your own tone and attitude and body language. I know sometimes when I'm in a rush, even though I'm trying to say all the right things, my body language is still communicating like, okay, let's get going. So I always have to be aware of myself that I'm kind of checking in and. and in being calm and really listening to folks. And then I ask a variety of questions. Next slide, please. When I'm trying to figure out about abuse or neglect, are you afraid of anybody? Has anybody hurt you? You know, I ask everybody these sorts of things. So I just wanna check in with you and see how it's going. Is anybody taking things from you without your permission? Pretty direct uh, questioning um, that I go through. And on the next slide, we'll talk about not what I call red flags, but pink flags. Um, We'll talk in a minute about why it's hard to get real red flags, but these are things that just kind of get my radar going. Explanations of an injury that just don't quite make sense, delays in seeking care, unexplained injuries, could be anything from fractures to wounds, stories that seem to keep changing, um, uh, sudden changes in behavior, which really can be a sign of, of trauma. Um, and so I have a golden rule in my practice that any change in behavior in a person with dementia is a medical problem until proven otherwise. And on my differential diagnosis list is some sort of traumatic event, event such as uh, abuse, abuse or neglect. So these are things that just kind of get my radar bubbling. And we'll go to the next slide and talk about why it can be really hard to diagnose elder abuse. Right? We have age-related changes that make the skin more thin, the capillaries more fragile. People often have other medical problems like a dementing illness, such as Alzheimer's disease um, or diabetes. They may be on medications that including blood thinners and steroids. They may have cognitive impairments. And so if we go to the next slide, you, we can see that whenever we see some sort of injury, and I'm gonna be more on the medical side now, you can almost always find a reason from all those other things we just talked about. They've got diabetes and they're on this medication and they're old and they fall and blah, 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 and they're demented and you can't believe anything they say. So of course they have a fill in the blank, a pressure sore or a fracture or a bruise or a contracture. They're old, they're old and they have Alzheimer's disease. So we all know that we cannot accept that kind of rationale and we have to look a little further. So what I'm gonna do is just talk for a couple minutes pretty quickly about pressure sores and bruises, just, as just to give you a sense of how I think about these things. If we go to the next slide, here's just a reminder about what pressure sores are and the different stages. Stage one is when you have redness. And I want you to pay attention to that last one there that says deep tissue pressure injury. We're gonna to come to that in a minute because I'm getting a little tired of hearing about these huge gaping wounds that open up and everybody goes, well, we just didn't know about it. Um, and I'll show you why that's not an acceptable answer. Um, stage two pressure sores are when they've broken through the skin. 
uh, but just barely. Stage three, a little deeper into the adipose or fatty tissue layer. Stage four is down to muscle, tendon, or bone. And sometimes it's unstageable. You don't know how deep it is because there's an eschar or, or a um, kind of a, a uh, growth over it, and you just don't even know how, how deep it is. Um, if we go to the next slide, that's a graphic of deep tissue pressure injury. So the skin hasn't broken, um, and um, but there's a lot of damage going on underneath the skin. Before we go to the next slide, I'll just warn you, it is a, a somewhat graphic photo. I don't think too horrible, but just I want people to be aware that it'll be an actual photo of what a deep tissue pressure injury looks like. Go to the next slide, please. Um, and these are the things that can just erupt the next day and look horrible. And so when a nursing home says, oh, we had no idea this was going on, the skin was intact. Well, technically, yes, the skin is intact, but darn it, you better know that something's going on here. And I'm gonna wanna see some documentation and be pretty unhappy if, if, if I come in and see a horrible wound and people had no idea that it was going on earlier um, because this is the kind of stuff that they should be alert to. So if we go to the next slide, I'll tell you about kind of what I look for in pressure sores uh, in, when I'm looking at the chart. What is their this person's functional status? Have they been having regular skin checks? Was this facility aware of, of the risk? Sometimes they use something called a Braden index, uh, but they could be using other sorts of indices. Have they been looking at the person's nutrition? Is, are they taking a team-based approach? It just drives me nuts when I see somebody who has a pressure sore, uh, you know, like a stage three pressure sore or even multiple ones and I'm looking into the interdisciplinary team notes and I don't, I've got buckets. I'm not seeing anything um, that helps me understand that, that these people knew that this was about to happen and were being proactive. By no means do I think that every pressure sore is a sign of abuse or neglect, uh, by no means. Um, but I think some of them are. Um, and so it's really important to understand the context in which these things um, have occurred. And we'll go to the next slide, please. So I'm gonna turn my attention to bruising out. I know I'm flying pretty quickly, but we'll have time for Q&A. And I wanna make sure my, my partners, uh, Karen and Jane have time for their presentations. So let's just talk about bruising for a minute. And the reason I want to talk about this is because this is another one of, well, they're old and old people bruise easily. True, but we wanted to study what is it about bruising that occurs if you have been abused versus you haven't been abused. And if we look at the very next slide, we'll see an anterior view, which is, you know, looking at the front of somebody. And you'll see on the left side, accidental bruising. And on the second slide, this is where we looked at people who had confirmed physical abuse. You'll see a lot more bruising on the face and the neck. Oh, and here's the posterior, which is the backside, where you see a lot more bruising from physical abuse on the neck and on, on the torso. So when you see a location of bruising, you wanna think about what's going on. I'm going to now show you three slides that have pictures of bruising. Um, I don't think they're, you know, they're not pleasant to look at, uh, but I just wanted you to get a sense of what I look at. Next slide, please. This is a bruise that's on somebody's shin. And when I think about accidental or inflicted, hey, you know, that's a pretty common place to bump yourself. Um, but if they're non-ambulatory, right, then how do they bump themselves there? So you want to put pictures together. On the next slide, you'll see bruising on somebody's side. I'm going to want a pretty good story about how somebody fell and got bruising there. So it's potentially accidental, but 
I'm gonna be asking a lot of questions. And if we look at the next slide, where we see bruising in multiple planes, massive bruising, to me, this is abuse until proven otherwise. Um, and you'll see there's bruising on the side of the arm, on the chest, on the torso. Um, and this would have me very, very concerned. If we go to the next slide, even though I talked about pressure sores and bruises, there's lots of other potential forensic markers, burns, contractures, lacerations, um, dehydration, malnutrition. And one thing we wanted to do in order to make it easier for um, healthcare providers to document um, what's going on when somebody has a wound is we created something, next slide, called the Jerry IDT, which is the injury documentation tool. And you'll have this website available to you. Um, it, it really, we created it to do two things. One, make it really easy for a physician or a nurse practitioner or nurse, whoever to document physical findings and also to kind of trigger people to remind them what to look for and document. The next slide is just a quick overview. It's actually a couple pages long, but it makes it really easy to document wounds. I know a lot of people on this, um, on this website won't be doing that, um, but I wanted you to know that it's available, that it's something maybe you can provide to folks that you meet in, uh, in various facilities. And again, the, the link is there for you. Next slide, please. Um, I just want to remind people that unfortunately neglect can and does occur in, uh, in nursing homes. Um, so people who are malnourished and dehydrated, um, you know, I was just recently in a place with somebody who had very elongated nails and, and, uh, and matted hair. And there was just, even though it was quote difficult, there really was no adequate excuse for this. And to me, that was evidence of, of neglect. So the kinds of things I consider, if we look at the next slide, is the context in which something occurred. What is this person's vulnerabilities? Um, what is it that might make them more susceptible to abuse or neglect? It could be physical, cognitive, emotional. What's their functional status? So I'm, I wanna see if this explanation of why and how this person has this wound makes sense against their vulnerabilities and their functional status. Um, injuries to the head or neck are big red flags for me. And then I want to see if all you put all this together, if it makes sense um, as a unit. So that's a really quick overview of the kinds of stuff that I look at. What I want to do now is just move on and spend the last couple of minutes talking to you about resources. Hopefully, I'm giving you lots of food for, for thought uh, to come back at us with, with uh, in Q&A. So let's go to our resources now. Next slide, please. We do have our National Center on Elder Abuse, or as I said, a sister organization to the National Ombudsman. Uh, resource center. Next slide. So we have information on reporting abuse um, and provide people with information both at the national and local levels. Next slide, please. Um, we have um, facts and brochures and templates and all kinds of stuff that people can, can download um, and use in your own communities. Next slide, please. Um, we have something called TRIA, our training resources, which is on our USC website, so that if you want to give a presentation, you can go and download slides, videos, whatever you need to make it as easy as possible for you to make a presentation. Next slide. We've translated a lot of our resources into many different languages. Again, all available for free. Next slide. We also have something um, called STEEP, which is supports and tools for elder abuse prevention. 
And this is something where if you want to, you can download the information and make it your own. You put your own logo on it, your own contact info, local reporting numbers, but it's just a way to make it easier for you to have all that information kind of uh, pre-done. And if you need to modify it, um, that you can. Next slide. We're also doing a lot of work with law enforcement um, on something called EGLE, uh, Elder Abuse Guide for Law Enforcement, which has gone national now. It's been a wonderful partnership with the Department of Justice. Next slide. We have, do have resources specific uh, to nursing homes on a variety of topics and have loved our partnership with Consumer Voice and NORC on these. Um, and uh, next slide. Ah, yes. Uh, this is just a reminder for me to remind all of you that um, the older we get, the more different we become. Uh, and that really the home heterogeneity is the hallmark of aging. And sometimes we have a tendency to categorize all older people as, as, as one group. But really, the older we are, the more different we are, the more heterogeneity there is, the less there is a one size fits all kind of a model for the, so the importance of person-centered care and really looking at each person as an individual is critically, critically important. Next slide. Um, I don't have to tell you that at the heart of everything we do is helping the residents we serve, knowing that we care about them, that there's still meaning to their existence, um, that it's still very important that they have comfort and identity joy and inclusion. And for me at the center of all of this is love. Love for our, our fellow humans, love for people who are in some of the most difficult situations imaginable. Next slide. And just the idea that I wanna thank everybody on this call because you make a big difference. You make a big difference in their lives. You inspire people like me. And I think you inspire people in nursing homes, your role models in can help all of us understand what it means to treat people with dignity and respect. Um, I know this was kind of a quickie overview. I hope you found it useful and uh, look forward to engaging with you during the Q&A session um, as well. So without further ado, I'll hand it back over. Thank you, Dr. Mosqueda. Great information and I look forward to the Q&A as well. So I'm gonna turn it over to Karen now. Thank you, Karen. Hi. Um, I do want to put in a plug for Dr. Mosqueda and um, some of the guides that they have. I've used them a lot with our law enforcement because most law enforcement don't know about the Bruce study. And so if you ever have a minute to check some of that out, it's really worth your time and very, very good tools for all of us. So thank you. Um, okay, next slide. So um, I represent a local ombudsman program here in California, and uh, we're decentralized. So it's a small nonprofit. And by small, I mean, we only do um, ombudsman services. I don't have a nutrition program or any other services that we provide. We only provide this ombudsman program and we've done it since 1978. So we've, this is all we've done for a very long time. Um, the program is considered small by, you know, it's facility sizes. So we have six nursing homes here. Um, it's kind of an anomaly, but they're all owned by one small corporation, which is both a blessing and a curse when they're happy with us because they haven't gotten in trouble, they're happy with us. And when they're unhappy because they do something wrong and get in trouble with the licensing agency or whatever, they blame us. So, you know, it's, it can be frustrating. 
Um, we have about 100 residential facilities and they range from the little small house type places all the way up to you know, more than 100 beds, almost 200 bed apartment style places. And they have a lot of owners, a lot of different personalities to deal with. We currently have nine volunteers. I have I actually had two that returned to service, but we ended up hiring one of them um, kind of temporarily part time. And I'm hoping to continue that a bit longer because we're really needing that help. And I currently have five paid staff, including myself and Mary, who's in our front office, um, keeping keeping tabs on volunteers, putting paperwork into the database and all that kind of stuff, and really just making sure things work. Um, and then we have, you know, a lot of longevity in our program. <clears throat> Sorry, I have allergies. Um, it's just kind of a bad time of the year to have allergies because of, you know, COVID. Um, but so volunteer years, um, they've been with us a minimum of six years and our oldest ombudsman, not by years of age personally, but by years in the program is 28 years. Um, and then I have a, my staff, our youngest um, staff, paid staff is also six years. And then I've been here just a little over 23 years. So um, the longevity does make a big difference in the services we can provide. And if nothing else you take away from this is stay in the program. It makes a huge difference for the residents. So next slide. Um, so when on March 13th of 2020, we were told ombudsman, we're indeed going to be not allowed in facilities. I have to say, I took a few minutes to kind of gather myself. I truly did not expect that. I've you know, been an ombudsman a long time and an ombudsman not going into a care facility is, it's weird. Like, why would anyone do that? I mean, of course we have to be in those facilities. They, you know, These are places that weren't handling life on a day-to-day -day basis for the residents and suddenly, ombudsmen, licensing, families, everyone was gonna go away and we're going to have to just trust that they're gonna do what they don't do every other day of the year for all those years. Um, it, it was inconceivable. And so we were out in our program from facilities from March 13th to July 23rd for 130 days. And it was a very long 130 days and a lot of worrying and so when our staff ombudsman Paula went back in, it was like, okay, we, we're back, we can do this. Um, and so um, we have some requirements. Here we are required to test every week. More often if um, at the time, if the, if the facility or the, the county had a higher COVID rate, um, and also we have to wear adequate PPE. And Dr. Mosqueda was very helpful here in California in making sure that we knew under what type of scenario, what type of facility we had to wear, what type of PPE. And so that was really helpful to keeping us safe um, when things were particularly bad with COVID. And our PPE orders do vary by our local health orders, so the local health agencies. But we, had, we have the testing capability, we have the PPE. Um, some of the stuff we've discovered is that residents who have dementia really don't like face shields. Um, they barely tolerate some of the other PPE, but wow, I, our staff ombudsman Paula has been yelled out of several resident rooms because they just are like, you take that off. And we're like, well, we're not allowed to take off the face shield. So, um, you know, it was, it was a real challenge having some of the PPE stuff and the residents have gotten a lot more used to it, but they, they don't love those face shields. Um, I'd have to say we don't love them either and have finally been able to go to glasses, the, the goggle types. 
Um, but PPE has saved us even recently. Um, you know, when you find out after you've been at the facility that there was a COVID outbreak that was discovered after you were there and the ombudsman got exposed but didn't have to quarantine because of using all the right PPE, that meant we could still go into facilities and still do our job. So as much as PPE is not comfortable or fun to wear, it really has saved us a few times. And even just last month, I got a call from a facility that they had a norovirus outbreak, um, kind of the cruise ship problem. And um, don't know where they got it from, but they discovered it after the ombudsman had been there that morning. And the ombudsman left there, switched out her PPE to new clean, fresh stuff, went to several other facilities. And the cool thing about PPE is we didn't know she was exposed or we wouldn't have had her go. Um, but because of the PPE, she didn't bring norovirus to any other facility and she herself didn't have a, an exposure risk so she could continue doing services. So next slide. Um, these are notes from Paula's first visit. Um, it was a six bed residential type facility which we have jurisdiction for here in California. And this is what she said, um, that the facility was, you know, the residents were observed to be clean, well-groomed, home was clean, all that stuff. But the fun thing was, and you have to understand, Paula goes to her facilities um, every two weeks. So they really do know her. And it was a long 130 days when they didn't see her. But one of the residents that she knows well was basically, you know, kind of giving her a hard time about the mask and, and gown. So it was good to see the resident rem remembered her, even the ones with dementia. And they were willing, the ones who were willing to were, were having kind of fun at our expense. But we didn't mind because we were back in those facilities. Um, next slide. Okay, um, so for the mental health stuff, this is some other observations that we've had. Um, the residents seem to do better than their families. The families were um, really struggling with this. And I'm not saying anyone's done well with the isolation. I, I still cannot believe we were kept out of facilities and that people didn't see the, the immense harm that that was going to cause, you know, the folks who made that decision. Um, I think the residents have a lot more resilience. I, I tell people a lot that the folks who get into the nursing homes, the folks who get into care facilities, they're the survivors. They're the ones who've been through a million good and bad things in their lifetime. And you know they're, they are tough, but COVID has pushed a lot of those tough folks over the brink. I mean, it's been a hard, hard year. Um, and initially, you know, from March to September-ish, what we saw was that the residents were pretty much saying the same thing consistently. You know, whatever it takes to be safe from the virus. And, and then it just got longer and it kept going and their families kept being kept out. I mean, we could be there, but we're not their family. You know, we, we love them, but we're not their family. And so residents started to get really discouraged and hopeless, you know, especially as, you know, the fall winter holidays started coming up. Um, a lot of people were a lot more affected by that. And so after December um, of 2020, that's when the residents finally were able to start seeing the light at the end of the tunnel with the, the vaccine and getting more access to their family. So that helped a lot. And these are some direct quotes of people that, you know, actually, um, they, this is what people told us. Um, one resident told Paula, you know, I'm so worried, you know, she, she was so afraid she was going to die before she could hug her son. And, you know, that, that's really awful. Um, and it's bad enough when your family doesn't live close, but you know, if they're right outside that door or window and you can't give them a hug, that it's just so wrong. 
Um, I know we want people to be safe, but it was really hard. I had a gentleman who was calling me because he just wanted to be able to see his wife, you know, be physically with her, you know, hold her hand, give her a hug, eat a meal with her, anything, because he'd only seen her through the window for almost a year when their 60th anniversary came up. And I don't think anyone plans that kind of stuff for their 60th anniversary. And then recently I was at a, um, a resident council meeting in a nursing home and a resident was asking about being able to see her dog. You know, the dog's been staying with family and she just wants to see her dog. And I, you know, being a horse and dog owner, I, I can tell you, I, I understand that a lot. Next slide. Um, so in returning to the facility, some of the stuff we found, one was that the food supplies were actually better than normal in the residential facilities. Um, and that's because a lot of the smaller facilities had been doing their shopping at normal grocery stores, Costco, you know, Sam's Club, bulk distributor kind of places that we all shop at for our day-to-day -day lives. Um, they weren't going to restaurant supply chains to get the food. And so when the grocery store shortages happened, it happened for the facilities even worse because there was a limit to like one of each item. And, you know, these are facilities that had more people. So that was challenging. Um, we also found that activities in, in some of the small facilities had really improved, you know, trying to help keep those residents distracted. Um, you know, the distant families actually had better access, the folks who didn't live nearby, because of the virtual options that hadn't been options before. Um, no, this is kind of normal, but grooming has been, wasn't good before COVID and it didn't improve with COVID. Um, and then, we did see that the residential facilities were less worried about the COVID restrictions than maybe the nursing homes. And so some of those residents seem to have a lot more freedoms than the nursing home folks. And then um, one of the things I've found in a facility or several nursing homes was just, these facilities were just void, devoid of light. There just wasn't anything happening. It was just, it was not good. Um, next slide. And some of our communication tips, and I won't go through all of these, but I will tell you when the families were calling and they were angry about COVID restrictions, listening to them was probably the best thing we could do. Let them talk it out. Um, we could agree with them. You know, I try not to agree with families all the time because they'll take that and run with it. Like the ombudsman said, you did this, whatever bad thing. So I don't, I don't typically agree with people, I'll just, um, but in this case, I could agree that the loss of rights needed to be resolved because we all agreed on that one. We needed to figure that out. Um, giving them some good advice really seemed to help. Um, so there was a lot that we could do to just listen to people that helped. And, and I cannot say enough that facility visits are the most important tool an ombudsman will ever have in their arsenal because the residents who knew and trusted their ombudsman before COVID absolutely were the ones who were willing to talk to us after COVID when we got back in those buildings. Next slide. And these are some of our lessons that we learned. Um, you know, we, we have always had to prepare our volunteers and staff that we will lose some of our residents, the favorites, the, the challenging ones, the good ones. Um, but that kind of was stepped up to a whole new level with COVID. Um, I will say keeping our PPE supplies available and up to date is something we will always do from now on. We are not going to deviate from that ever again. We, we did not have what we needed um, before COVID and the stuff we did had had expired. So that slowed us down a little bit. Um, and staying current with any of the guidances, that, that's been a challenge. 
And then of course, relationships with other entities really matters. So next slide. Um, here's some things that I thought was successful was partnering with our local health agency. Um, there's a lot that the local health agency can provide. This is a slide about what they've provided for us, which really is, I think the most important thing is I get updates every day about the COVID status of the care facilities that we visit. So we're not surprised unless it's a, tested and found later whether they've had COVID at that moment or not when we've been there. Um, and there's a few things that we can do too to help. And I do wanna point out some of them do require that you talk if you're a local ombudsman with your state ombudsman. And that can even be being a liaison between facilities and health agency. Um, you know, we have those contacts. So we are a good natural partner for local health, health agencies when dealing with facilities. But, you know, if you're making agreements like that, again, you want to talk to your state ombudsman to make sure that, that that's all working out the way that they're expecting you to make that work out. So next slide. And these are just some of my favorite quotes. And I think that may be my last slide, which will be good because then Jane will have time for her presentation. All right. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. I'm going to turn it over to Jane. Hello, my name is Jane Brink and I'm a regional ombudsman off, out of uh, Minnesota and we're a centralized um, program. We're uh, a program from the Minnesota Board on Aging, our state unit on aging. And um, next slide. Um, there are 24 regional ombudsmen in our state. I am the ombudsman in the north central part of the state. I office in Brainerd Baxter, if anyone knows of that area. Um, there are three certified ombudsman volunteers in my region, um, one paid staff, and I've been work doing ombudsman work for 35 years. Um, I have five counties, there's 12 SNFs, and nine are not-for-profit and three or for-profit, and there are 77 assisted living facilities. Next slide. This is a timeline for our visitation in Minnesota. On October 12th of 2020, the Ombudsman program started window and outside visits. October 11th of 2021, Ombudsman indoor visits started. And myself as an Ombudsman started my first indoor visit on March 22nd of 2021. I want to reassure you that many Ombudsmen started right away on January 11th, but I chose um, to um, go in after I was fully vaccinated. Next slide. I was asked to talk about more of the feelings when you go in for that first visit. And the first thing is I felt safe. Our office has a wonderful policy where we are tested weekly. Um, we were vaccinated and we were able to be vaccinated right in the beginning when all the essential um, employees, essential people were uh, vaccinated. And then we had a lot of PPE. Um, the first feeling I had was overwhelmed with the PPE. Um, I walked in the facility and 
people know me in the facilities, but I was greeted with like a red carpet practically because they were lonely. They didn't have a lot of people coming in their facility at that time. And so I was greeted well by the facility. Um, getting checked in is always an interesting um, experience and they're all different. And I always feel that that's a good thing that the ombudsman goes through too, is just seeing the different ways that people do the check-in and checking your temperature and all those kinds of things. Um, when I looked around the facility for the first time, I can tell you that I was extremely sad because it was so quiet. And the facility that I went in was never quiet. There was always activities and things going on. Um, I didn't see another resident you know, in the hallways as I went to see the person I was visiting. Um, it even seemed darker, literally darker, <laughs> like they didn't use as many lights in the hallway um, and very lonely. And that just set me aback. Um, the resident I did visit was extremely happy to see me. We giggled and laughed about the PPE. And um, we, our office, we had a, a staff person that worked on a postcard project using some of the information from um, Consumer Voice where we had our picture on the postcard. We handed that per the person our picture with um, information about our ombudsman program and also um, rights in the back. And the, and the beauty of that is they only saw half of me because I had a mask on and a shield. This way they could see who they were talking to. And I thought that was helpful to be able to give that person something. Um, the PPE was a challenge, like I said, at first. Um, and literally, I recommend that everyone work and wear their PPE and try it out before you go to a nursing home because I was walking through the halls with my little plastic um, covering on my shield. So no wonder I couldn't see. So you know what? It's better to practice ahead of time. Next slide. Um, what we found in our first visit, again, I'm going to continue that, is the loneliness um, and not a lot going on. Um, and now since we've been in, it's it's June now, now we see resilience, we see hope, we see, see things going on. I even last week passed by and there was singing again and laughter and that is what living together is all about. And so when I first went in in March, it was sad and lonely. Now I see that happiness. Um, when I first went over, there was maybe a visitor outside, but usually not, just staff. Um, now there's people all over visiting outside because the weather is beautiful in Minnesota now, and also people inside and activities going on. I have been told by staff that there are some residents that are a little scared to get out still. And they also have been so, um, isolated and in their rooms that even walking those long halls are harder for them. So they're working on more walking programs and some PT referrals because some people lost their ability because some of their exercise was walking to the activities or walking to um, dinner and they weren't doing that because everything was in their room. So that's something to watch out too. Um, next slide. Um, some insight for casework going in. I have to admit, I was 
frightened to go in at first. And I am such a believer that it's the only way to really do ombudsman work. Um, you miss the body language. You can be in a care conference, but you don't see everybody's face. You don't see everybody's eye rolls. You really don't see the body language. And that's so important. Facial expressions. Now, I know we only see half of them, but those eyes do tell us things. Um, seeing people where they live, seeing their environment, watching the interactions between the resident and the family, the resident and the staff are so important. And even if we're just connecting with our eyes, we are connecting in person and that's so important. And it's easier to establish trust when I'm sitting there next to someone, that's where the trust is developed. Um, and then it's easier for all of us to communicate. I was born half Italian, so I use a lot of body language. And when I was Zooming a lot and FaceTime, you didn't, that didn't really matter as much. It does again. Next slide. Um, ombudsman needs, um, other lessons uh, learned is ombudsman need to be with the people we support. I can't wait. We have a, a encouraged to go at least um, twice a week visits. Oh no, Th these ombudsmen that I work with and myself, we're going in as much as we can because we know that we need to be with the people that we support. Um, some of the people we support uh, wanna talk about their experience with COVID. That they, that they were really scared, that they lost people they loved, how it felt not to see their grandkids except for through the, the window. And we need to give them that time and hopefully be able to refer them to appropriate counselors. A lot of times the social worker is able to help with that. Our Council on Aging in our region has done a lot with connecting people to um, counselor counseling kind of groups too. Um, and visit the resident councils because they love us and they miss us. Um, the first one I went to, they were so quiet and this was not a quiet council, but they did want to talk about COVID and so we did. And they talked about missing people and losing people. And even though that's hard, um, they needed to get that out. Next slide. Um, we mean, may need to re-educate staff about our role because we haven't been in there for a long time. So we have a lot of brochures, our postcard is handy, tip sheets, that type of thing. Oh, and also for the resident council, give them that resident council advocate newsletter from Consumer Voice because they do love it. And um, it's got information just for them. Um, certified ombudsman may need a little bit support more support from us um, when they're going in. Ours are going in right now this month, which is awesome. Um, I have been so grateful for our role during the pandemic. I could not imagine just sitting here knowing the people that I support are all alone. At least we were able to do FaceTime. We were able to get our, the residents' families in, get the people that were important to them in. And so I feel that this job was, I'm so grateful I had that to actually do something meaningful during the pandemic. Next slide. Um, we did something in our office, the postcard, uh, you have a picture of my postcard. And just in case you folks want to replicate it, we also did in the beginning the personal planning resource for people that were going into like the hospital or if they had a COVID unit, um, it would be a way to find out 
what was important to that resident, how to best support that person, and what was important for that person. We used, um, with permission, documents from ACL and also the learning community and made a, a, a way that the resident could communicate those important things that someone would know in the hospital about them. Like maybe, you know, my family are so important, keep my, um, my iPhone next to me. I need to talk to my daughter every day at 4.30. Um, I don't like um, socks on when I'm in bed. I mean, it can be any of those things. All those important things like our medicine and our healthcare is important, but to make us feel comfortable during our hospital stay, it may be things like I have to have music on in order to sleep. So letting people know those things and that resource will also be on the NORC website. Next slide. That's just our contact information, and I will hand it over to Amity. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jane, Karen, Dr. Mesqueda. Excellent presentations, and the entire time that you were speaking, I was thinking about that line about you not having to be a therapist to still be therapeutic, and I couldn't agree more. And I think that means even more during the pandemic and, and our recovery than it did before. So thank you so much for sharing those tips and your experiences. So we do have a few questions and attendees, thank you for submitting those. Feel free to submit more as you think of them. I did respond to some of them directly. So just to let you know, a couple questions came in about PPE. What level of PPE, personal protective equipment, is recommended for bedside visits by ombudsmen, specifically for residents who are not suspected of having COVID, also not at the time of a, a current COVID outbreak? So I responded to that just so you know. It mentioned that it, of course, depends on uh, guidance and requirements from state ombudsmen for their state program. However, in general, the NORC resources, the COVID-19 recovery and reentry resources I mentioned earlier, are based on CDC guidance, and um, those recommend wearing a mask. So in those situations, specifically, if you're visiting someone um, that is not suspected of having COVID and there's not a current outbreak, um, that is, again, based on CDC guidance, since ombudsman programs are not healthcare providers. And another question that I responded I to. Just, do, do you mind if I chime yes. in on that real quick? Of course, please do. Thank you. So one thing I've noticed is that um, sometimes the local public health department is more restrictive, which they're allowed to be, than the CDC. And um, so I think also being aware of what's going on at your local public health department and sometimes pushing back because I've noticed that at least in some of our areas, they've been more restrictive for no good reason. And we've, we've had to uh, push, push back on the, on the public health departments a little bit as well, so. Thank you, I completely agree. Um, and if you're a local ombudsman or you know, program representative um, and you're aware of more restrictive requirements locally, definitely discuss that with your state ombudsman as well, because uh, you need to follow the statewide guidance and, and maybe that's something that can be addressed uh, by the state ombudsman with you. Um, so let's see, let me get to the questions. 
All right. So it looks like we have several questions about scheduling visits, and I can't speak to that specifically, but I do want to address them. Uh, the question was, how long do you think facilities will be able to limit family visits by scheduling them? Oftentimes, facilities can only get three or four families at a time, and so not all residents get visits. So I wanted to reiterate um, there in the FAQs that I mentioned earlier from Consumer Voice, I urge all of you on the call and those listening to this recording later to review that and keep it with you. It'll help you respond to resident questions and family questions as well. But basically, since the CMS guidance says that while facilities should allow indoor visitation at all times, they can consider scheduling visits for a specific length of time to help ensure all residents are able to receive visitors. And they can also consider how the total number of residents in the facility may affect their ability to maintain core principles of infection prevention. So obviously, yes, they can schedule, but again, it needs to be person-centered. And so, for example, if a 15-minute visit is 15-minute visit is not enough for a resident, then certainly. Uh, advocate to make it more person-centered and individualized and ask for an extended visit or more frequent visits. So I can't unfortunately answer the question about when that will change because uh, we're not we're not sure uh, when CMS will make those changes but excellent question I know it's top of mind for a lot for pretty much everybody. Um, let me see if there's uh, one question for Jane and Karen uh, for regionals. If you're testing yourselves for COVID, how often do you test? Uh, the poster said that current positivity in her county is 0.8%, so it's very low. So I, I can answer that we're actually looking at that in California. We, we uh, several of the local ombudsmen, including myself, worked with our state ombudsman, who since retired, so now we're dealing with our, our our interim state ombudsman um, to redo our COVID requirements for ombudsmen, including our testing guidance and our you know PPE guidance. Um, and so we can't change it right now. We're still doing at least once a week testing, but uh, that will probably change as we start to look at adopting the state licensing guidance and the CDC guidance. But it really does and you know, I don't want to say unfortunately, but darn it, it, it takes a lot to move the ombudsman sort of ship around when it comes to setting up our own requirements. So you have to work with your state ombudsman and make sure that you're not not trying to give up testing too soon, and then you cause a problem. Even though rates are low, they're still out there. And so hopefully we're, we're gonna see less testing. I know my nose will be very, very happy when that happens because I went today for my test, yay. But it is like getting an A on a report card when you get your results, so that's nice. Uh, ours is ours is um, weekly. However, there is some flexibility in our policies, so there are times when it's a little longer. Um, and we do the vault one where you spit, so it's not as painful at all. <laughs> so, and um, we have policy people that are ongoing looking at that and trying to determine if we're going to um, make that. Um, Right, but as of right now, that's what our policy says is, is it's, um, it's weekly and then there are times when, you know, we have supply issues so it can go longer. 
Thank you. Good question. So this has come up often in our calls with ombudsmen, and the question is, how do you uh, support ombudsman representatives who are still afraid to go back in? And since you both work with volunteers and you experienced uh, going back in yourself, do you have any tips, Karen and Jane? Well, I'm probably going to defer mostly to Jane, but I'll tell you, I've only gotten two of my, I had 11, so two of them now, nine um, ombudsman volunteers went back into facilities. The rest are kind of doing a wait and see. I do have one that's coming back now that he's um, fully vaccinated. What we are trying to do is give them some time. Um, we've offered mentoring where they can come in and do our PPE training. And we have a really good video here in California and we have a whole protocol for the training that they have to do to resume visits and then offered to take them on a um, kind of a mini visit. So we'll actually accompany them to make sure they get the PPE on correctly and then do just a just a kind of a not an in and out, but just, you know, one or two resident visits and then out the facility so they can kind of get their foot in the door. But I will tell you that when I went and did my first nursing home visit after we were restricted, I, I felt like I could go in with no PPE. And I'm not saying do that. I'm just saying it felt like being home. I mean, I've been in these facilities for years and I just, you know, unfortunately COVID is not a virus that's made out of color. So you can't see it. You know, it's not like it's a big sign that says, here I am a little dot of COVID. So it just felt normal. And I think once people see that, that yeah, we have to have the PPE, but we can be normal, we can see our, our residents, we can help our residents, we can do our job. That seems to help a little bit. But again, I haven't had a lot take me up on that yet. So uh, Jane may have some other ideas. I, I did share that I was frightened at, at first and I, I did actually sit down with my medical doctor. And when we talked, we realized that going into this nursing home is a lot safer than me going into Target or Costco because it was a lot of my nursing homes have, you know, 90% of the residents are have been vaccinated. Staff, not as much, but the residents are the ones that I'm spending time with. And so I think what I would do is, is just talk to them about my own experience. And then luckily, we, right now in Minnesota, we do have nice weather. So if the volunteers feel uncomfortable going in, you know, talking to them about sitting outside with someone and, and talking to them there. Um, the three uh, volunteers that I have, however, are in um, our medical professionals and they're not, and they're excited to go in and they're not afraid as long as they have their, their PPE. So um, understanding that it is scary, but once you get in, it's just like what Karen says, you know you're in the right place and, and you, you do feel safe. Thank you. So an easy question for me to answer before I move to some bigger ones. Uh, there are a few questions about the slides and yes, the slides are available for you to print. And then all the registrants, we will send an email with a link to the recording, all the materials and uh, the slides uh, early next week. So those will be available. And if you look in the chat feed, we can drop the link to the slides in there again as well. So another uh, more of a statement, and then we'll get to a question to circle back to the comment about the local health departments. Uh, the comment is local health department guidance kept isolation policy very restrictive, causing problems such as weight loss, loss of muscle, hearing loss, et cetera. 
Nationally, I suggest planning for the next pandemic, where at least there can be bubbles of three to five residents who are testing negative to be able to hang out together. The isolation was too long, too detrimental to residents. Thank you for sharing that comment. And tied to that uh, with a question, thank you to the wonderful presenters, so thank you all. And how do you think the pandemic has changed the future of long-term care facilities? What trends do you think the pandemic started that may take years to realize? Uh, do you want me to jump in? Okay. Uh, um, so I, I think that, um, you know, this just awakened people to what I think a lot of us already knew. Um, I think those of us who work in these facilities were not surprised um, by, um, by what happened, but I think this is our opportunity. Um, the world now knows what's going on in these facilities in ways that people had never understood. Um, I think, you know, we still have to fight the ageism that is, that is still quite prevalent, certainly in the United States, so that people recognize the residents who live in nursing homes are people and human beings who deserve better than what they've gotten, as, as do their families. And so this is the opportunity to agitate and advocate for change. And I think there's going to be, you know, two big streams. One is there need to be a lot more community resources that are available for older adults and their families so that fewer people need to be in nursing homes as long-term care residents. And the other is we have to insist that we do a better job. Um, and I think that's going to be a lot on the policy side of, um, how nursing homes are financed, where the money goes, um, the workforce issues related to training and appreciation of the people who work for very low wages in nursing homes so that this becomes a real career path opportunity. Um, and that um, we know how to make these more humane places uh, for people to live. It, it breaks my heart when I go out on an elder abuse case, I work with Adult Protective Services and I'll see somebody at home being abused and saying, I'd rather be here than be in a nursing home. I'd rather be here and be abused and being in a nursing home, even if I'm not abused there. So um, I think this is really our chance to say, uh, it, it's time to make significant, bold, substantial changes to uh, how nursing homes work. I think also um, we didn't realize or maybe we did, how much care family members give their, give their family members. When they were out, how many residents didn't get the care that they normally did because it was the daughter or the wife that was giving those cares. Thankfully in the state of Minnesota, we did have a law where essential caregivers could go in um, and do those cares. But I think it was a big aha moment to the whole industry about how many families do actually do a substantial amount of care for the residents in long-term care. Thank you so much, both of you. Um, I just want to say that I agree with um, COVID in a lot of ways being the big revealer to uh, broken systems that we all knew were broken for a very long time. So there's definitely a lot of room for change, improvement, uh, bold changes. 
But I do want to mention what I, I loved about the slides that you shared today, Jane and Karen, about your experiences. There are some takeaways from it, some things that did work that we found out accidentally that they worked. Uh, for example, the long distance caregivers having a, more of an opportunity to actually connect with their loved ones than they did before, since there's more technology and people are more comfortable with it. So I do want to make sure that we move forward taking both the positives and the negative lessons learned and uh, work with, with both of those. And I would be remiss if I don't mention, um, for those of you on the call, to, as I mentioned at the very beginning about NORC as a resource center, we um, do not uh, do, we do not advocate. However, Consumer Voice that operates the resource center, they are the national advocacy organization. So if you are looking to those changes and policy changes and information, I encourage you to look to Consumer Voice um, and get that information there. Um, there. And also, of course, if you are a program representative, turn to your supervisor. If you're a volunteer, talk about getting involved in systems advocacy. And if you're a paid representative, talk to your state ombudsman. Um, so, and figure out, again, how you can make systemic change in addition to the individual advocacy that you do so well. Dr. Mesqueda, please. Yeah, and even if you um, really couldn't or shouldn't be doing any advocacy, which is certainly understandable for a lot of us who have national centers, you are allowed to educate. Um, and so I think um, taking an education perspective of just here are the facts. Um, there have been great articles in, in everywhere from medical journals to health affairs that just provide education with factual information that some people might not have easily available. Thank you. Another question, uh, as a volunteer, are you required to have the vaccine? Again, similar to PPE, the personal protective equipment, it is specific to state programs, uh, state ombudsman program and policies, whether they require vaccination. So you need to ask your supervisor. Good question though. I'm scrolling to see if I missed any. Another statement slash question was most of my large facilities are still requiring families to make appointments for visitation. Is this the norm across the country? And I think we can say um, yes, that seems to be the case. Unless Karen and Jane, if you're not seeing in your experience um, some facilities not scheduling them, uh, please share. But that seems to be what I'm hearing, at least at our level. No, it's the same here. The nursing homes are still scheduling, the residential facilities are not. Um, and some of that's due to the licensing agency here in California. They're kind of requiring the facilities to keep the number of visitors limited at any given time. And we were really hoping for new guidance that would stop that because it's giving them, the facilities, a sort of easy way to keep the number of visitors down. And that means some residents can only get one visitor a month at this rate. Um, we also have facilities that weren't allowing any visits, you know, weekends or evenings, and that doesn't work for a lot of families. So um, we're hoping that goes away, but no, unfortunately the scheduled visits that it needs to leave soon. That that's definitely a huge problem. I mean, we're glad they're in, but they're not in enough. We do 
they they do usually ask for scheduled visits, but it can be very short um, time frame. Um, it can be I'm on the way to see grandma, can I see her kind of thing. And usually facilities work that out so that they can get in there. Um, as long as you know, the there there isn't COVID in the facility specific. Thank you. And um, I'm just going to be a little ornery for yeah. a minute and say it's not okay. It's not person centered at all to say that somebody, ha you know, if they're in the neighborhood and want to stop by and visit a loved one, people should be able to do that. And so I think we want to be, you know, understanding of the facility situation, certainly. And, um, but also to be aware and, you know, appropriately cynical at times when it's more of an excuse. And we might be the only people to advocate on that sense. So. Absolutely. Thank you. And I was going to say, I think that's where the most up recently updated guidance that we mentioned earlier is helpful. I think the language, if you pull directly from that, would be really helpful when you advocate for either more time um, or more visits or both um, and less time in between scheduling and so forth to make them more person-centered. I agree. So another question, the drawbacks you describe, the inability to see body language, faces, knowing who else is in the room, mobility issues, when you can't be in the room are the same deficiencies with Zoom and FaceTime. Doesn't your role vary by state? How cooperative were facilities in arranging FaceTime with you and also with families, with residents, especially elders who can't operate phones on their own or put hearing aids in themselves? Any experiences with that? Some best practices of facilities scheduling those uh, virtual visits? My personal experience is that the facilities were helpful. Um, there were times when a resident did have hearing issues. And so I talked to the resident one on one if they had a staff person that they trusted that could, you know, reiterate what I was saying. And, and so then they were in the room with us. I was on Zoom and they had a Zoom, but then sometimes the staff person had to um, repeat my question or repeat her question. And that seemed to work well. And what we've seen is, you know, yes, the facilities have been good at helping to facilitate, but there's just a lack of available devices, a lack of internet access. Um, even if they have internet, the, you know, we all see it with our own systems, you know, you may have too many people on the bandwidth and it just makes it kind of choppy. But what we've really seen is that residents who have dementia really struggle with, with virtual visits. They don't do great with phone calls and they're certainly getting kind of confused about, you know, the whole virtual visits. It, it's better than not, but People need human contact. We are not designed to be sitting in a place with no contact. And, you know, having someone talk to you from a box is not going to make up for, for that loss of the touch. So, it, again, I'm glad we had something, but it's time to get past that something. We, we need to get back to normal on that one. Thank you. So, to follow up there is a, a comment and an advocacy tip i'd like to share from the q a uh, she says i like connecting visitation policies in addition to using the term person-centered 
to the ADA requirement for reasonable accommodation. And I think that's an excellent advocacy point. Thank you for bringing that up. One last question I believe we have time for. Our um, ombudsman, in your experience, Karen, Jane, Dr. Mosqueda, are you scheduled like visitors or are you able to go in uh, spontaneously? So I'll, I'll answer first and we'll see what the others say. But um, in my program, what we did when we first returned is we called the facilities for their first visit. And only because they'd been so, the facilities were so stopped from having visitors that we didn't want to have a fight with them at their front door. We wanted to know if they were going to have any barriers to us getting in and to go overcome them, to send them whatever they needed to see that we could come in. But we only scheduled that first visit. We didn't really schedule. We just told them we were going to be there whatever day it was. We didn't say what time. Um, and we do not schedule our visits otherwise, unless it's, you know, for a specific thing that we'd like a healthcare directive or something else we do here in California. But, but the first visit's worth calling for, but not after that. We're, we're back to normal-ish. Same for me. <laughs> we do call um, because every facility has a little bit different protocol. So we do call and that's something that we are looking at changing because we always have done unannounced visits. I mean, that's part of the ombudsman role, um, but for our indoor visit policy right now, we call and um, schedule. We don't have a time frame though. We just let them know and, and say that we wanna come. Is there anything we need to know um, about your facility and your, um, and that's, we don't necessarily tell them who we're visiting, but we tell them we're coming into the facility. Great. Thank you. What, what Jane described is very similar to the original guidance that we had in the COVID uh, recovery and reentry resources for the reason you mentioned, that at least at that time before CMS guidance had been updated, you know, all facilities have different requirements, um, sometimes even different requirements for PPE. Um, but as we're seeing and, and things progress and we start to move out of um, hopefully to the end of this very long, long tunnel, um, I think that you'll see that folks are starting to get back to normal-ish and, and making those unannounced visits and not having to make those phone calls. But yeah, I think that is very standard practice for what we've seen, um, kind of easing back in. So with that, um, I'm gonna go ahead and go over our last few slides and reminders. So wanted to call your attention to a few upcoming events, um, especially since we have so many folks that may be new to the Ombudsman Network on the call today. Resident Rights Month is coming up and it's in October each year. This year's theme is Reclaiming My Rights, My Home, My Life. For Resident Rights Month, Consumer Voice hosts a Residence Voice Challenge each year. Uh, they're asking for artwork, poetry, essays, video messages from residents related to the Resident Rights Month theme. So as you speak with residents and facility staff, this would be great to share with residents, um, especially because the deadline for uh, the submissions is September 1st. So they have this summer, and as you start going back in, I think this would be a good topic to bring up. And also wanted to make you aware that the 2021 Consumer Voice Conference will be held virtually again. It's November 3rd through 5th, and registration just opened this week. So for more information about those, both of those events, please visit the links on the slide. 
So I wanted to give a huge thank you to Dr. Mesqueda, Karen, and Jane. Thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us today. Thank you all for attending, especially on a, a Friday afternoon. And please visit our website and follow us on social media. Visit those links that we shared in the slides. Don't hesitate to reach out to us directly if you have any questions about the materials we've shared or simply help finding a resource or if you have a request for technical assistance. That is what we're here for and we it's a joy for us to provide. So I'm gonna close out right on time. Thank you all for joining us and have a lovely weekend. Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care is a program of the Avoiding Drugs as Chemical Restraints Consumer Education Campaign, a partnership of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care and AARP Foundation. Make sure to visit our website, theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality, where you can subscribe to the podcast and find more information about the campaign. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next episode. (laughs) 